When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. You retweeted an unflattering picture of her next to a picture of your wife. I didn't start it. Oh, but that's, I didn't uh, start uh, it. Sir, with all due respect, that's the argument of a five-year-old. Anytime he gets upset, anytime he gets threatened, anytime he gets scared, he begins yelling, he begins often cursing. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast, the show about the man running for president, but not promising to serve if he wins. I'm Jacob Weisberg, just back from vacation. I want to thank Leon Nafok for running the show while I was away. I really did need a vacation from Donald Trump. Over the past six months, I was feeling like I was spending more time with him than with anybody else, and just listening to him all the time, marinating in that stew of bloviating malice and crazy self-regard. It takes a toll on you. I'm sure listeners know what I'm talking about. It's too serious to ignore, but too much of Trump is corrosive to the soul. And that's why as much as I enjoy doing this show, I cannot frigging wait for it to end. Now, next week is the Republican convention, and there's a big question looming over it. The question is what happens to the Republican Party after Donald Trump? Next week, it's going to be his show and his party. And most sane Republicans are finding excuses to be anywhere but Cleveland. But once Trump leads the Republican Party off a cliff, what happens then? Do Republicans stick with the populist politics that won him the nomination in a walkover? Or do they try to return somehow to real conservatism to resurrect the now defunct anti-government party of Ronald Reagan? That's going to be the big schism in the GOP going forward. And I expect we're going to start to see the outlines of it in Cleveland next week. To discuss the Republican Party's future, if it has one, I have with me one of the shrewdest students of the modern American right, Sam Tannenhaus. But first, in honor of our 50th show today, let's do the greatest hits from Trump's tweets. Why is this reporter touching me as I leave a news conference? What is in her hand? Lion Ted Cruz can't get votes. I'm millions ahead of him. So he has to get his delegates from the Republican bosses. It won't work. I would have millions of votes more than Hillary, except for the fact that I had 17 opponents and she had a socialist named Bernie. Cruz said Kasich should leave because he couldn't get to 1237. Now he can't get to 1237. Drop out, Lion Ted. Wow. The ridiculous deal made between Lion Ted Cruz and one for 42, John Kasich, has just blown up. What a dumb deal. Dead on arrival. I'm in Indiana, where we just had a great rally. Fantastic people staying at a Holiday Inn Express, new and clean. Not bad. Goofy Elizabeth Warren and her phony Native American heritage are on a Twitter rant. She's too easy. I'm driving her nuts. 
the pathetic new hit ad against me misrepresents the final line. Quote, you can tell them to go blank themselves was about China, not women. I have a judge in the Trump University civil case, Gonzalo Corral, who is very unfair, an Obama pick, totally biased, hates Trump. My guest today is Sam Tannenhaus, the author of the book, The Death of Conservatism. He's also the author of a super provocative piece in the most recent issue of the New York Times Weekend Review entitled, How Trump Can Save the GOP. He writes that conservatives should thank Trump for exposing their real problems. Sam, welcome to Trumpcast. Jacob, great talking to you again. So what are the GOP's real problems that Trump is exposing? They are locked into just the most desiccated, sloganeering ideology. And we've been hearing it for years now, all through the Obama years. And of course, it predates the Obama years by a lot. But especially in the Obama years, if you look at some of the manifestos and treatises that came out of the right, like the Young Guns book that Paul Ryan, much in the news now, and Eric Cantor and Kevin McCarthy wrote. If you listen just to the boilerplate of Ted Cruz, who is kind of the by-the-numbers conservative ideologue, you hear all this talk about constitutional conservatism and liberty and religious liberty and freedoms and all the rest, and you don't hear anything about the actual problems of their own voters. You know, for a long time, Jacob, as you know, you've written about this too, there was a cultural populism that dominated the right. And the idea was, oh, here are these great people who go to NASCAR all the time and, and they're eating happily at Applebee's and they like America the way it is and they will vote Republican because they hate liberal elites. Well, that's fine when the economy is working, but when it's not, well, those are the, the people who are hit hardest. And Trump, for all his faults, and I know them as well as anyone, I think, you know, it's not as if I'm a cheerleader for <laughs> Trump. At least he's put his finger on this thing, that you have to address the economic insecurity of lots and lots of people being left behind. And somehow during the debates, right from the start, nobody else talked about it. You know, Marco Rubio would go into that weird brain frozen overdrive and repeat his comments about the evils of, of Europe and socialism and all the rest. And nobody talked about people who had like really low wages and bad jobs who feel ethnically and culturally threatened because they're a diminishing white population of Protestants and all the rest. And Trump's the only one who talks about it. So what he did by just blowing the rest of them out of the water. And let's not kid ourselves about that. Go back and look at George Will saying, this is the strongest field potentially since 1856 <laughs> when the Republican Party was founded. Well, guess what, George? Look who won. And he won going away. Sam, when you talk about the conservatism that isn't working, you're really talking about a version of Reaganism, Reagan's economic policy, domestic policy, cut programs, lower taxes, small government, less regulation. But isn't that the essence of what the modern Republican Party is? I mean, how do they abandon that and still be a Republican Party? 
Well, that's really the problem. And of course, you know, you know a lot more about Reagan than I do. You wrote a book about him. But it's true. It's, and, and, it, and again, it predates him. It really goes back to Goldwater and National Review. National Review did not endorse Dwight Eisenhower in 1956 because they thought he was too liberal. And the magazine was founded in part to revive this older style of conservatism, libertarian conservatism. And yes, it peaked under Reagan. And the answer is the only time it really seems to work is when the ideologues like Ronald Reagan start compromising, which you also know a great deal about, or when they get these kind of what George Will would call counterfeit conservatives or counterfeit Republicans like Eisenhower and Nixon, who just cut a lot of deals with Democrats, which is what Trump potentially could do. So the answer is Republican politics works when it's not conservative politics. Now, whether you can separate those two in this day and age, well, your guess is as good as mine. I think Trump at least opens the way for a conversation like that. But yes, ideologically, this is what they've been locked into for a really long time. So let me challenge your premise, Sam, that Trump might be in this category of accommodationist, pragmatist, realist Republicans. I mean, you talk about Eisenhower and the way Eisenhower finally accommodated the New Deal as opposed to standing on this extreme principle and the way Nixon accommodated much of the great society and modern liberalism and supported expanding regulation in the form of the EPA and so on. But Trump's doing the opposite right now. I mean, he's weirdly having the nomination locked up is tacking to the right rather than the center and trying to find someone to run with, it appears, who will burnish his extremely limited and compromised conservative credentials. That is a problem. (laughs) (laughs) There's always a problem with Trump as you get a different story every week. Well, and and here's another one, because I'll go along with your devil's advocacy here, too, because it is a concern of mine. Let's say Trump wins, okay? If Trump wins, that means presumably the Republicans hold on to their majorities in Congress. And who's actually writing the laws and legislation? Probably Paul Ryan, who's going to give us the Atlas Shrugged (laughs) (laughs) policies, right? Take their health care away, take their Medicare away, let everybody discover the liberty of not having any safety net so they could be free in their souls again. (laughs) So it could actually be far worse. I totally concede that. And do you think Trump's going to sign those bills? I mean, as you say, he's a total, he's not even a chameleon. He just wakes up and who knows what's going to happen. But in that scenario where Trump is elected, you sort of posit a potentially promising scenario where some sense of, of civic responsibility dawns on him. And he says, I want to be like Eisenhower and Nixon, who realized you had to govern the country to, from the center to some extent. But what happens when Paul Ryan starts handing him these, these libertarian bills and abolishing the safety net and abolishing federal agencies? Does he stand up for the people who voted for him and say, no, we like these programs? Or does he sign those bills? Well, first of all, I'm wrapping my mind around the fact that you may be the first person in the history of modern civilization who used the words Donald Trump and civic responsibility in the same sentence. I was attributing, like, I was attributing that thought to you. To me, so just I to know. be clear here. but <laughs> Well, there's Woolman Rink, right? That was his, <laughs> his skating rink. Okay, well, I do think that's the question because with Trump, my very smart colleague from the New York Times and now editor at Bloomberg View, Katie Roberts, says, well, Trump is someone who's just going to want to prove he can get things done. 
So if Paul Ryan gives him some crazy bills to sign, he might just sign them. So there's that, and that way he can go out and play golf and, and do the things he really likes to do, and that, of course, more important. But there's also this, I do think, this possibility that it's not so much about Trump as the party itself. And maybe here I'm being totally Panglossian, where should he win or should he lose, they actually take stock of what this election means. And Trump did win an amazing 37 states. It's a totally legitimate win. And maybe somebody says, well, you know, people are voting for you because you said X, Y, and Z. You did promise some kind of economic relief. You did say early on that people should be protected by health care, even praised the single-payer system in Canada and other places. So maybe we really ought to do this. To me, what's remarkable, and I'm still it, it boggles the mind, is that someone so much an interloper should just sweep in and win as easily as he did. Remember, he clinched it before Hillary did, before she clinched the Democratic nomination. So you would think somebody somewhere would say, there's a riot going on, you know, there's an ideological riot going on, and some big change has to happen. And maybe shrewd strategic people around him say that on the other hand that also posits the smart shrewd strategic people that we haven't <laughs> we haven't really seen yet so far have not signed on with him let's talk about the the more plausible scenario the more likely scenario at the moment which is trump loses now you you know you, yeah, you're, you're, you're really what the piece is about yeah and you know you're a close student of the conservative movement and and the republican the modern republican party what happens? This guy has exposed this huge gap between what rank-and-file Republican voters care about and what the party stands for. Then he sweeps to the nomination of the party and loses the election. Let's say he loses it very badly. How does the, what, how does the party react? Well, as you know, the rosy scenario I had is we get Goldwater in reverse. And, and Mike Lind, Michael Lind, who's a very brilliant guy we both know, is also very big on this, that, that you get reverse Goldwater. You get the guy who says, who embodies the principle that this ideology just doesn't work anymore, that, that you don't elect a new president of the Federalist Society every four years. You know, you actually have to have a, a governing president. So maybe out of all this, you have a new generation of Republicans. Imagine the ones coming of age now who are just watching this election and seeing how it works. They want to get ahead. They want to make politics successful. They want themselves to be successful in politics. And they say, this is the guy who has the message. What if we have a sane Trump? Just as Reagan, in a way, became the presentable Goldwater took the Goldwater ideology and then was able to sand off its edges and make it sound more humane and actually make it be more humane, right? So somebody comes along and does that with Trump and says, you know what? Trump is right when he says we're not the conservative party, we're the Republican party, which, by the way, is one of the most insightful things anybody said this campaign. Any Republican has said it in years is when Trump said we're not the cons it's not called the conservative party, it's called the Republican party. And someone comes along and says, you know what, here's a guy from the Northeast. He kind of gets that there are huge segments of the electorate that are being left out. The Reagan 
policies don't work. Yuval Levin, who's a brilliant guy who edits a national affairs magazine and does all sorts of policy writing, has got a new book that says Reaganism doesn't work. It doesn't work at all. It's outmoded. It came out of another era. So there's no reason to think that a smart Republican of a new generation couldn't pick up that argument and take it somewhere and say, all right, we don't want to sound like Trump. We don't want to be vulgarians and bullies. We don't want to sound racist and bigoted and, and, and incoherent. But we're going to start with his essential premise, which is that the party will not survive in this climate unless it connects with working class and lower middle class voters. That has been the basis of the majorities it built going back, you know, to the 80s. And we have to do that again with a different ideology or without this overt ideology. That doesn't seem implausible to me. But but Sam, Sam, the, the bigotry, the blaming foreigners, the, the fantastical impossible solutions, those are the essence of Trump's appeal on the right. And you, yes, the opportunity on the right clearly is now around populism and nationalism. But you strip all that stuff out. Why does it work? I mean, you've just got you've got then just a sense of a bunch of trade policies that don't make any sense and will make things worse without the excitement that Trump generates around them. You might you absolutely might be right. And if it comes down to straight policy arguments, that's probably true. So I guess what I'm kind of hoping is in a sort of cultural way, somebody comes along and says, what's the one thing Trump has to say that makes sense, you know, for the entire country? And it might be that there is a kind of division between the top and the bottom. You know, if you look at um, a book like uh, Charles Murray's Reason One Coming Apart, you look at Thomas Piketty, you know, you can see the one on the right, one on the left, you can see one common thread that w- runs through, right, which is the difference between those who are really well off and are the haves and the growing population of have-nots. Now, it's true, a lot of it veers into really ugly and implausible cultural populism, chase out the immigrants, you know, get rid of the Muslims and all the rest, which no serious and humane person wants, and which you may be right is actually the emotional basis of Trump's appeal. But what if Trump is a kind of thin edge of the wedge, right? And he opens it up simply by pulling down the temple there. He opens it up for somebody else to come in and do something better. I know that's really Panglossian and, you know, don't hook me to a polygraph and say, you know, do I think it's going to happen? What I think he's done, his contribution, which is what the piece was about, is to expose just how dry and sterile their own ideology had become on the right. Whether there's something that'll replace it that works better I, ju- I don't know. I mean, may probably not. I do like um, the reformacons. I think we're trying to do something. They got scared off and chased off. I thought they were the ones who had the opportunity to jump on the Trump bandwagon and actually do something with it. And I talked to some of them about that. I, I thought Ross Douthat early on, who I think is a brilliant columnist, I thought early on he was getting what Trump was about. Remember, he did that book with, uh, with Ryan. Yeah, with Ryan Salon. Yeah, that's, a, that's really repays reading. It was really good because they identified the problem too, you know, back whenever that was, 2008. Uh, they saw what the problem was. David Frum saw what the problem was. Now, how that translates to politicians, 
I don't know. And how it translates into policy is the even bigger question, because in the end, we don't hear policies coming out of the right, at least that I'm aware of, that really sound all that plausible. And when they are pretty good, like the individual mandate or cap and trade, they run away from it as soon as a Democrat favors it. Right. So, you know, I'd love a Republican Party, as you would, run by David Frum and, and Rasta, that. But in the real world of politics, if positing what you sort of posit that Trump could be the Barry Goldwater of this change on the right, who could be the Ronald Reagan? I mean, do you see anybody out there on the landscape who is a more palatable and plausible bearer of this kind of populist message? I don't yet. Do you? No, but, you know, I guess Ronald Reagan, you know, in, in 1964, Ronald Reagan looked like the guy slightly to uh, Barry Goldwater's right, who was, you know. To- well, that's and, which was going to be the, the next thing I said is that in 1964, you really couldn't see who it would be either. You know, Reagan gave, you know, his famous speech, which was a campaign ad, as you know, for Goldwater, in which he warned about. You know, the road to serfdom was the next step after Medicare, you know. So he didn't seem especially plausible at that time. So we may not know yet. I'd be curious. This is a story somebody's got to write. I haven't seen it yet. If there was a really young wave of people getting pulled into the Republican Party who are actually kind of smart as a result of the Trump upheaval. You know, are there any of them out there in New York or Arizona or Montana or any old place, Orange County, getting involved in politics who are excited just by his skills? And let's not forget what they are. I wrote about this someplace. This guy knows more about media than anybody who ran for politics, including Reagan. He's a maestro of media. You know, he's not stupid. All right, he can't speak an English sentence or he sounds like <laughs> Molly Bloom. Take your choice. <laughs> but... um he has great media skills. Is there somebody there who can cut away all the stuff and get to the, to the nub of something valuable? I haven't seen that person yet, but boy, I'd like to, like to hear from her. Maybe that's who it will be. Smart woman politician. Sam, I'm putting that on our assignment desk for early 2017. I think it's a great question. And uh, yeah, <laughs> have somebody do it. Uh, thank you. It's great talking to you. We could, I could talk to you about this stuff all day long, uh, but thank you for joining me on the show. Thanks again, Jacob. That's it for today's show, which was produced by Jason DeLeon. His bumper sticker says, Bring Back the Party of Lincoln. Steve Lichtai is our executive producer. He's proclaiming Morning in America for Slate Podcasts. Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. His slogan for the summer is, Keep Cool with Coolidge. And hey, this is a late-breaking promo, but have you been listening to Malcolm Gladwell's new show, Revisionist History? I've been getting messages from people who were reduced to tears by the most recent episode. It's about the struggles of a brilliant kid called Carlos, who is growing up in one of the worst neighborhoods in L.A., with the odds stacked totally against him. If you haven't already, please give this show a try. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. Crooked Hillary wants to get rid of all guns, and yet she is surrounded by bodyguards who are fully armed. No more guns to protect Hillary.